This is the Get In My Garden podcast, episode 80. I'm Aaron Moskowitz, and today we meet Leo Horrigan. Leo has been working with the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins University, helping us understand the food system from farming to food access, and creating educational programs around their research. He shares the five most important components to look at as we repair our food system. Leo shares about a lot more, including how farming and carbon are always going to be linked, how we are studying the prairies and soil to make sure we can restore and unlock the potential of the soil. Thanks for listening. Follow this podcast on Instagram at GetInMyGarden. Send me an email, Aaron at GetInMyGarden.com, and subscribe wherever you listen from. We're called Center for Livable Future. I always say that we might be better identified as the Center for Sustainable Food or Sustainable Food Systems, because that's really where we put our focus. I mean, the food system is such a gigantic topic, and we tend to gravitate toward the two ends of the system, the production end, and how things, how things are produced and how that affects public health and the environment. And then at the other end is more of an equity focus. Do people have reasonable access to healthy food? And of course, as, you, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, an awful lot of people don't have that. So uh, you, you hear the term food desert. And so, so that's another issue that we are very involved with. What have you noticed in the time that you've been involved? Have we made progress with at least the food access problems? Well, I can tell you one thing. Um, I think this is sort of an uplifting anecdote is when we started out, the center started in 1996 and I started there in 1998. And even though we're housed in a public health school, at that time, there were people within the public health school who were skeptical or, or were confused. What are you, why are you paying attention to agriculture? Well, this is a public health school. What does that have to do with public health? You know, because public health is a vast discipline, a vast area of study, but it had not been traditional to have a huge focus on agriculture or the food system. I mean, people don't really talk about the food system very much. That's something we try to change. But I will say that they, we don't get those kind of questions anymore. We've come a long way since then. And a lot of students who come to the school say, well, I, they say one of two things. I came to the school because I saw what you were doing at the center, or they come to the school with a different notion of what they want to do with their public health career. And then they, maybe they come to some of our, some of our seminars, or they have, a, have take a course that has to do with the food system. And suddenly they're just hooked and they say, why well, I'm going in a whole different direction with what I want to do in public health because of, you know, your courses. And it's very gratifying from our angle because you know, when you first, we first started talking about these things, it was kind of an uphill slog to get people to pay attention. And now, you know, because the public interest is, is so high and, you know, where does our food come from and is it healthy and all those kinds of questions that, you know, we don't have to start out by explaining ourselves or why we exist. That's not really so much of a hurdle. So now it's more, we're just able to delve more into the topics at hand. We've evolved, of course, over this many years, but one of our first focus areas was antibiotic resistance in mm-hmm. animal and animal production. I was amazed the first time I saw a commercial on TV where it was some big, I don't know what it was, Tyson or Purdue or somebody who was touting the fact that their chickens were antibiotic free. And I thought, oh my gosh, we have come, there has actually been progress, you know, because no before kidding. that was, that was a non-starter really. I mean, we knew that this was an urgent issue, but the, the industry didn't really want to change. And of course, a lot of the change happened because of good research and also because of the push from the public. So you just hope that that happens again and again with other topics as well. But at least you, you need to grasp onto some of those success stories because they, they give you the energy you need to dive into the next issue, you know. Um, as far as the soil goes, it's definitely peaking right now in people's awareness. 
at least on the internet, there's a lot of people in the ecological movement in general. Of course, people talk about carbon nonstop, but it seems like the solution might come from the soil. Uh, and then it sounds also that most of our food security issues will come from smaller, local, healthier food systems. Is it mostly larger agriculture that you're looking to see the changes in, or is the initiative, is, is it pushing smaller farms as well? One of the things that was kind of gratifying, so let me just give you some backdrop. We've made a few films about, documentary films about issues in the food system, and, and it kind of like, here's where I feel like I overlap a lot with your podcast is, I really like to find the solutions that are out there and, you know, tend to be sometimes they're very small scale and you hope that by, you know, shining a light on them, you'll help people scale them up. You know, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's probably part of the mission of your podcast. I don't know, not to put any words in your mouth, but <laughs> I think that a lot of change can happen as far as the carbon situation. It can start with people's practices at home. So they don't even have to be gardening for food. They could be just landscaping and making small changes there, which will change the ecosystem in their area. Yeah, that, that's a tremendous uh, point. I'm glad you brought that up because we do tend to forget how much acreage that involves. I'm a backyard gardener myself. I've been gardening since I was a teenager. So awesome. Uh, yeah. So my interest in this stuff goes really far back and I've loved composting too, but I haven't, I still haven't looked at my compost through a microscope. I keep saying I'm going to pick up a microscope, but maybe that's my next big um, hobby oh, awesome. or obsession. Be but careful. I'll, it might Take all your interest and attention for the rest of your life. That, that could, I think that'd be all right with that, actually. But, um, but that was one of the things, like when we made these, so I mentioned the three documentary films, and I wanted to focus on solutions because it's so easy to get depressed about what's wrong with our food system. And, you know, not, I didn't want to be Pollyanna. I wanted to put out, you know, point out things that were real. And of course, there are real things out there that are being done that are solutions. And, and so in the, the most recent film, we call it Growing Solutions because we, and we looked at, what I like to call it the ingredients that you need for a viable agriculture. And this is not an exhaustive list, but we've narrowed it down to um, soil and water and the farming workforce and biodiversity or, you know, seed, domestic biodiversity in seeds. And then lastly, perennial roots, like perennialism. Nice. And so, though, you know, again, not exhaustive, but those are five things we thought were important. And of course, threaded through the whole film, which we didn't really entirely anticipate how much this would happen but climate comes up in almost every case because you can't you really can't talk about farming nowadays without bumping into climate change and 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 maybe that's a good thing because it means people's awareness is there but Mm -hmm. to go back to your point you asked me about um small scale versus large scale this is something that sort of connects all growers because i think no matter where you are in terms of scale or whether you call yourself an industrial farmer or conventional farmer or you're organic whatever it behooves you to help your soil to make it healthier. So it's intriguing and it's kind of heartening to find that a lot of different kinds of farmers are interested in soil health. Soil health is kind of like a a meeting point. This was kind of pointed out to me by one of the people I interviewed for this Growing Solutions film. His name is David Montgomery, and he calls himself a geomorphologist, which means, I think, I hope I'm not butchering this, but it means he he, um, studies the changes in land over time. Uh-huh. I mean, he's really a geologist, but he became interested in soil because he was studying how uh, the loss of soil in all these different civilizations had led to the collapse of that civilization. So we don't want to be the next civilization that is on that scrap heap kind of because we didn't take care of our soil. And, and a lot of times we, we talk about the productivity of American farmers and how amazing you know, our farming productivity is. But really, 
we were kind of handed a gold mine when people settled the Midwest and started digging up the prairies because I've read that there were places in um, the prairies, like in Iowa, where the the topsoil was 18 feet deep. Yeah. Not, not 18 inches, but 18 feet. From all and the grasses. From all those grasses because they just turn over so much biomass. And so you can't replicate that really, but you can mimic, try to mimic what the prairie does. I mean, it's a great, the prairie is a great teacher. And I, I, the last section of the film talks about the Land Institute and what they're doing there in terms of trying to mimic the prairie by creating what they call a perennial polyculture. And that mm -hmm. is, you know, what we have now is annual crops growing in monoculture. Uh, the, the key points there are that they're annual, they're not perennial plants. And then they're also grown just one, you know, acre after acre of corn or of soybeans. They're not mixed together. And that's not, of course, how the prairie operates. Anyone, you don't need to spend that much time in the prairie to see that there's nothing that looks like our agriculture in the yeah. prairie. So, so, and of course, the prairie has thousands of years or millennia of track record to say that, hey, we know it knows what it's doing, kind of, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so it's, it's a great teacher. And that's, you know, you'll hear people say that the Land Institute, a lot of, it was very gratifying to go there and, and film and interview people because I'd known about the Land Institute for uh, about 20 years, more than 20 years, actually. And had always admired their, what they were trying to do there. Well, that's amazing. As far as like, do you know? Do they have specific plants that they plan to plant together, or that they're researching that you know of? Yeah. Um, in fact, they so they have reached what they call the watershed moment in their history because they finally have started to commercialize a grain crop. Called, they call it Kernza. It's K E R N Z A. And Kernza. Now they've they've got that to where it can, you know, produce enough yield and, and farmers are trying it out on a small scale on their land. Um, but they're now, I think they're in the process now of figuring out which crops grow best with it. They had some test plots where they were, and, they, and they're probably, they're not going to have the amount of diversity that's in the prairie probably, but they're at least going to have, you know, two, three, four, I don't know exactly how many, you know, maybe four or five crops growing together to try to increase how well they do together, you know, in playoff. Mm -hmm. And I saw a little bit about that. That's basically just a grain, an heirloom perennial that they've bred, and yeah. it's got the profile of a food item, right? Yeah. What they did was they took something called intermediate wheatgrass. It's a wild relative of wheat, I guess, and they, and they are domesticating it. So basically, there's two ways to make a... What, what they want in the end is a a domestic perennial, right? So in order to get to a domestic perennial, you're either going to start with a, a wild or something that's domesticated by this annual. Mm -hmm. And then you, you, you try to incorporate the other feature that you want in it. So they have been able to like, I guess you'd say tame the intermediate wheatgrass to make it a usable. What, what they want to do is like a wild grain doesn't produce a ton of seed because it's not that, if it's perennial, it doesn't need to right. put out a ton of seed, right? It, it needs seeds still, but it's not as um, urgent as it is with an annual. So you're kind of like pushing it to act a little bit against its nature and put more effort into making seed as opposed to the other parts of the plant. And you do that through just, you know, plant breeding. It's a laborious mm -hmm. process, but they try to speed that up as much as possible too. And of course, they're not alone in this. This is an international kind of effort. It's happening in all kinds of all kinds of countries and all kinds of research centers. That's so great. So, yeah. what do you? How do you feel about all this? Do you think that it's a very promising time for research, or do you feel that um, we're coming up against like bigger powers that might not have the same interests, like maybe uh, you know hyper GMO or something like that, and you know just ramping up with technology 
and more chemicals. Well, if I were to give a hopeful spin to it, I would say that because so many farmers are in crisis and agriculture has so many overlapping crises, I mean, those are the times when we tend to, as humans, when we tend to move into, we're willing to try something different when there's a crisis going on. So, you know, we've had this regime of, the you mentioned the genetically engineered crops, and they were supposed to be this panacea for farmers because they were supposed to get rid of the weed problem. And instead, they've, you know, I don't know how much you've followed that, but things have got worse with that because now they're using more toxic pesticides because the, because the original regime did not really work. It, you know, mm-hmm. the resistance, I mean, nature's intelligent. It, it, resistance was created very quickly, quicker than anybody probably imagined. And, and it was predicted that all these weeds would become resistant, but, you know, they kind of just forged ahead with this model anyway. Well, it, it, it seems like there's, their answer is always to just fix the new problem and just exactly. keep trying to keep the status quo. I'm, of course, worried about that too, but also the seeds. Uh, I saw that uh, there's a portion of your film dedicated to that. Can you talk a little bit about that as far as the risk to our seeds? What we've, the genetically modified seeds can sometimes destroy other crops, from what I understand. Is that something that you've researched or covered? Um, well, I can say maybe the biggest threat to um, our seed biodiversity is the way the commercial interests tend to focus in on just a few varieties, whatever is, you know, has the highest yield. And a lot of times it's based on what travels best, you know, what can be transported without um, damage, those kind of things. So sometimes the what works for them well doesn't necessarily work best for the consumer. Like, you know, if, you, if you've only eaten tomatoes from the supermarket that came from a great distance, and then you've tried your first whatever heirloom tomato from someone's backyard garden, it's almost like not eating the same thing. I'm sure you've experienced that. Yes, absolutely. So, so I mean, there are reasons for that. In the breeding of flavor into the crop has not been the primary interest, you know, or it's been less important than than like the other things I mentioned, like they want something that's large and is consistent in size and they want it to be transportable. But that, that means, you know, with plant breeding, it's always a trade-off. If you, if you breed one thing into it, one trait into it, you're probably breeding something else out of, out of the crop. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's why so many people like to grow food in their backyard because they can grow whatever the heck they want and, and not have to worry about that. You know, I mean, it's just one reason. Yeah. There are lots of benefits obviously to gardening in your backyard, but that is certainly one of the nice things about it. I meant to mention too, when I said like that they have a certain interest in a type of variety, because that happens in the commercial sector, you, you tend to have other varieties that just sort of drop off the list, like the seed catalogs, you know, will lose some of these. That's why it's kind of a treasure when you have these seed catalogs or the seed companies that are keeping alive all these heirloom, not just heirloom varieties, but also, um, you know, hybrids that have been around, around a long time too. And, you know, they may not serve the interests of the commercial sector, but they're very desirable for other reasons like flavor. Mm-hmm. Know, or, or just beauty if some people grow things because they look beautiful too. So anyway, I just want to make that point. Yeah. And most people who are gardening in their backyards, if they're taking an interest in the whole process and they're not just, you know, picking up a plant at Home Depot, like a start for, you know, it was pepper or something and then plopping it in their yard with a bunch of miracle grow. I bet that they would be much more inclined to be ordering heirloom seeds and curious of their origin no at doubt. least. No doubt. Well, and so Food Span, that's a program that been de- it's been developed for teachers at high schools. I, I saw some beautiful graphs that you have there, and I'm just curious how that's worked out and how, how what schools are teaching the program and how successfully you've 
been distributing that? The idea for Foodspan, Foodspan is a, a curriculum about the food system. Uh, it's designed, as you mentioned, for high school teachers, and it's you know standards aligned with social studies and science mostly, but also um, family and consumer science and health. I wanted to um, kind of expand our reach as far as educating about the food system because you know, we started out teaching courses at the School of Public Health, which made sense, of course, it's where we live. And so we were teaching students there and it was, the courses were very successful. Students loved them, you know, got great reviews on the, on the courses. And so it made sense to me to try to expand our reach. And of course, you go into the high schools and you're, you're talking about a lot more students you could potentially reach with, with these kind of food system ideas. And, you know, when we did kind of a scan of what's out there, there aren't a lot of curriculum resources related to the food system. There's a lot of stuff about gardening. There's a lot of stuff about nutrition and, you know, those are all good, but not much that kind of gives you more of a system-wide look at, you know, where food comes from and decision-making in the food system. And we really want to advance this idea of creating food citizens that high school kids would, if they actually went through the curriculum, they would be able to realize that they can have some impact on their food system. There are all kinds of ways that, you know, mostly at the local level, they can impact their food system down to their own diets, but we didn't want to stop there. We also thought like in the school, they could have impact on what's served in the school cafeterias. There's mm-hmm. a whole farm to school, which you're probably familiar with the whole farm to school movement, which is pretty profound and, and pretty widespread because school food has such a bad reputation. Everybody, lots of people no have kidding. horror stories from about the school food that they experience in cafeterias, but that's, you know, slowly changing and it's been, it's ramped up pretty fast actually. But to get back to your question about distributing it, that that's a little bit more of a tough slog we found to distribute it because one, because it's, I think because it's interdisciplinary. And so, mm-hmm. you know, schools are not always accustomed to teaching in that way. I think that's changing. I mean, I'm not, that plugged into what's going on in schools, but I get the sense that there's more of that kind of team teaching that happens in some places where, you know, they're trying to put together the different disciplines in some ways. So if you, you know, you're looking through food span, you'll see that there's a lot that sounds like science, but then there's social studies. And then, you know, we ask students to journal and um, there's art projects, some of the, there's extension projects. So kind of trying to hit the different ways that people learn too, you know, mm-hmm. engage them in that way. You, know, you have a lot of teachers who care about these issues and they don't really have the materials to teach. They want to teach these kind of topics, but they don't have the materials. So when they land on food spend, we tend to get a lot of very excited responses from teachers sometimes, mm-hmm. especially if they, you know, some of these teachers will be somebody who was a farmer and, you know, they grew up on a farm, but now maybe they teach in an urban setting and maybe they're shocked at how little their students know about where food comes from. And so they, they really want to address that. And so, you know, that's almost like a perfect kind of audience as far as the teachers that are our audience. So we really thought that it would be more about teacher interest and they would latch onto it based on their interest. And also there's 17 lesson plans. We don't expect too many teachers to teach the entire curriculum, but right. they're, kind of, they're kind of standalone though. You can teach one and it, you don't, the student doesn't have to know all the other lesson plans to be able to pick up anywhere in the curriculum. So that I think is helpful for teachers. And, and we do notice that certain lessons are especially popular, like the introduction to the food system is the first one. And that's very popular. There's also one about the industrialization of agriculture, and that's, I think, been popular too. But yeah, and of course, it change, it shifts too, because now I think because of COVID and we've seen this rising interest in food system workers, like all of a sudden they're classified as essential workers, like grocery store workers, and nobody mm-hmm. really put them on that kind of plane. You know, they, they didn't really get the um, attention they deserve as far as how important their work is, right? So now- That's a great point. That, 
yeah, because of that, I think not, we have a lesson called the hands that feed us. And that's more about uh, workers in the food systems. That's awesome. Also, how many videos have you created? I guess they're documentaries. Uh, yeah. Are those all part of the lesson plans or they're completely separate? When we were putting together the curriculum, we thought it would be nice to make some films because they're such a good resource for teachers. And so we've made three of them. There are, the three documentaries are roughly between 35 and 45 minutes long in that range. And the first one we did was about sustainable food animal production, like the sustainable production of meat, milk, and eggs. Because now we have this confined system, you know, we have these factory farms and we know there are all kinds of problems with that in terms of public health and environment. And also the communities that are near those factory farms are having all, have all kinds of issues, quality of life issues, health issues. So we wanted to um, dive into that, but also we wanted to do it from that solutions angle. And so we, we looked at farmers who were raising their animals on pasture, which is, of course, you know, they used to all be raised before they became the common uh, practice to to confine them. So that was our first foray into the filmmaking. And, it, and again, it was solutions-based and we sort of gave the backdrop of like, this is why this is compelling, this is why it's necessary, but we mostly spent our time on the solution. And then the second film we made, we went to the other end of the food system and looked at access. It's called Food Frontiers, but it's all about trying to solve the um, food desert problem. And so we looked at five projects around the country that are approaching from different angles, from finance or farm to school or improving school food. There's, there's some very compelling people in there, I think. And, and then this most recent film is called, again, Growing Solutions. And that one is looking at problems in crop production and you know things that um, make it harder for farmers to produce viable crops, especially for the long term, because a lot mm -hmm. of our Right. A lot of our crop production looks good in the short term. They have these high yields, but two questions, high yields of what? Is it really the, the crop we need most as a society? And secondly, can you sustain those yields without doing harm to the environment? Or are you, what kind of harms are you already doing to the environment for the sake of that high yield? Yeah. Well, I saw that you had several interviews in New Mexico. Uh, were you, did you travel out here? Yes. It okay. Was, that's what I yep. expected. Yeah, I mean, it seems it's good for the New Mexican audience because so many of those issues are literally like right in front of their face as small farmers because we have, well, we have completely variable soil in New Mexico, extreme weather, drought, just lots of problems that we're facing. But there's also a culture of respecting the land and looking at problems more holistically. So I feel a lot of promise in New Mexico from the small farmers, at least. Yeah, I, I and mean, it's interesting because I, as we were making the film, I kept sort of drawing comparisons in my head between what happens in New Mexico because you do have issues with kind of retaining moisture, I would guess, in the soil. That right? too, yeah. Yeah, and so I thought all the things that were mentioned in the other section about soil health will be helpful to New Mexican farmers in particular because if they can, you know, bring up the soil organic matter, obviously that creates a sponge. I mean, there, there was one farmer we profiled in North Dakota who. He said that on, on some of his fields, he's gone from six inches of topsoil to 29 inches. Amazing. I mean, it would probably take longer to do it in New Mexico just because you have less biomass production. But mm -hmm. think about what that means for a farmer in New Mexico and, and how drought resistant that 29 inches of soil makes it, you know. And also they talk about that in the prairie. When you talk about the prairie, I mean, nothing survives drought like a prairie because it has those roots that go down so deep. So you need that big storehouse of soil, but then you need the roots to go down and take advantage of that. So those kind of things kept resonating in my head. And I thought, well, this is, you know, uh, I'm guessing that the folks in New Mexico, this is not anything, you know, I'm not telling them anything they don't know already, but 
but maybe there's some things in the film or the people in the film might be helpful in terms of ideas of how to how to reach those goals of greater soil organic matter and you know in that um sponge effect of the soil that's so good yeah and i think just watching new mexico is the bellwether of the movement to restore our soils is pretty valuable yeah absolutely and actually another thing that was exciting for me in doing the film is that the insecchias that we profiled i mean that's like an age-old solution but one that most people don't know about i didn't know about it until a few years ago and so that's kind of mixed with you know we have elaine ingham in the film and she's kind of like on the cutting edge of soil ecology and and seeing what that can do for farmers i mean she's already doing it with farmers. She's helping farmers improve their land in the present day. Um, she's not just in the lab, she's out there in the field too. Mm -hmm. And so you have an age old solution and you have new solutions and they, and they both work. So we, you know, we need to respect both, you know, the cutting That's edge, smart, yeah. respect what's what we know from centuries of tried and true, you know, like the prairie too. The soil food web is amazing. And I think it works great with the secchias. I've heard some things about, I mean, there's a mixture of quality in the secchia water. Some of them are somewhat polluted, I guess, mm. but I think they're still bioactive compared to other systems. And so that's one of the components of, I mean, every time that you uh, water your fields with an secchia, if the if it's not polluted, then it's it's like inoculating your field with those microbes. That's fantastic. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a great way to kind of marry those two things. I, I agree. That makes sense. Yeah. In the years that you've, I saw on your LinkedIn, you've, you were at the Institute or I guess the center, and then you left for a while, then you came back. So what's something promising that you've witnessed in that period of time? No, that's a great question. I'm going to make it personal at this point. Our son, Eamon is, uh, he was a biology major. And then uh, now he's um, very much interested in like forest ecology and things like that. And so he, he's actually at Duke doing a master's program. So he, he kind of has absorbed some of our values on, you know, nice. out in the outdoors. And, and so that's my personal note as far as like what has happened in, in our personal lives that validates all of this kind of stuff, you know? I think a lot of young people are making good, you know, they're making decisions based on I mean, the, the message has been, well, our economy is kind of screwed. It's a different world now. So people want something very meaningful. Yes. And it is very, um, I, I will say in every one of our films, we've had young people, you know, we've interviewed young people, some sometimes very intentionally, but sometimes it just sort of happened by accident. In each case, it's very gratifying to see that they have, there's a huge amount of interest among young people. A lot of times they get, you know, as British would say, they get slagged off as being disinterested or whatever. But that's not really what I see in a lot of the people out there. And, and the other thing is, um, when you have a farm that's really viable because of this regenerative kind of farming, you have then have young people who want to stay on the farm. They the mm -hmm. ones you know traditionally, not traditionally, but in the last several decades, a lot of so many young people have not wanted to stay on the farm, and that's because they see a farm that's not not healthy, not viable, you know, economically or ecologically. And so, not surprising that they wouldn't want to stay there. But the, some of the young people that I've met on these and interviewed on these farms that are more, you know, ecologically sound, they want to stay there. They they see all kinds of promise and they they have ideas to go beyond what's there now. So that's very gratifying to see. One more note I want to make. This is a, turning another page, but one thing that's occurred to me during this whole COVID pandemic is that here we are. You know, we're supposed to be the species that has it all figured out, right? The humans, we got, we know exactly what, how to organize our worlds, right? But 
<laughs> here we have here we supposedly right so now we have this this um organism that we can't even see it's so small we can't even see it and it's completely disrupting our economy our you know our social interactions it's a tremendous disruptor if that doesn't make us more humble as a species i don't know what would and is that kind of humility we need to apply to um viewing the soil as being so important to us because you know, I don't think people have traditionally paid much attention to the soil, except maybe farmers, but it takes a certain humility to say, oh, there are organisms in the soil that are that are microscopic, but yet they're important to my very existence on this planet. So that that humility kind of crosses over between the way we look at the pandemic and the way we look at agriculture and soil. Yeah, that's a really great point. It doesn't take a huge group of people who are on the same focus level to make something happen. So the there's definitely like they i've heard that there are not enough small farmers well i'm very encouraged by the trends that i see there it doesn't seem like there's a shortage of people that are interested in it so there will definitely be people to carry the torch so that's i i feel like that's one of the values of what you're doing you're finding those people yeah thank you I, that is basically my evil plan is to let people know about that <laughs> but the small farmers who really are doing big things, you know, they're doing things that need to be known about. So, mm-hmm. and also researchers like Elaine Ingham, she's, I mean, she's so important. Her knowledge and people like her are just producing such important knowledge right now. You know, we've had this chemical agriculture and that's been a huge boon to all these input industries. Obviously made a lot of money off selling us chemicals. And now, you know, what kind of biological products will they sell? I mean, at least they'll probably be more benign, I would hope. And some of them will be really good. I'm, I think there is a lot of uh, exciting, like economic opportunities to kind of enhance this biological farming with with inputs that are both high quality and you know affordable for farms and all that. But it, but I also think that I, I would imagine that most of the inputs that farmers need, they could probably produce on their own farm. I think it's more like a, a you know, it's going to be a minor adjunct to what they do on their own farms. You know, whatever that industry is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but like anything else, it'll need to be regulated so that farmers aren't getting product that's, you know, poor quality. And, you know, some of the same issues will ensue from that. But but I think it is kind of exciting, too. There's there's an upside and downside, like with anything. I mean, what you said that developing them on their land. So like some of the methods that people use to get indigenous microbes and things like yeah. that. Is that what and, you're referring to? I was actually, yes, I was um, one of the one of the podcasts I listened to was the gentleman in Petersburg, Virginia, who was doing oh, nice, yeah, farm. that was very exciting, really exciting stuff. And so, yeah, oh, I was yeah. exactly, I was ex- exactly playing off of his um, work. It's it's really Korean natural farming, which is based on all the Asian farming systems deal with fermentation, and um, whether they know exactly what they're doing or not, uh, they're just fostering the microbial life. So yeah. there's so many things that people can do. Absolutely, and I think there will be. I mean, I don't know that much about this, but the. I'm sure there'll be implications for human health in terms of what we learn with what's in the soil, because, you know, I think there could be some solutions for things like this pandemic. I I did ask Elaine about that. And, you know, I don't think anybody can give you like specific answers at this point because the research hasn't been done, but there's certainly opportunities there to come up with other solutions besides vaccines. Not, not to say the vaccines aren't part of a part of the solution, but, but even those are, you know, we know they're not hundred percent effective and they'll get us a lot of the way to, solving the problem, but there may be other ways like on the front end where we don't have to wait till there's a pandemic and then create a vaccine that the, 
you know, that we'll understand more about the interactions among all these viruses and bacteria in the soil and what can be done. You know, again, this is like just me kind of thinking out loud and musing, but I think there's there's got to be a lot of new knowledge we, we could produce in the next few decades because people say that we know so little about the soil, I mean, compared to other areas of study. So... Yeah, absolutely. The soil, it's its such an in- interesting and unlimited subject. And so is mycology, which has been kind of peaking right now. People are talking about both of them, and they're so intertwined. Absolutely. That's another great point to make is mushrooms have already shown that what the fungi can do so much, and we probably haven't even you know scratched the surface perhaps of what it can do. We don't know. They've started marketing supplements that are based on, like, well, they're probiotics that are based on soil microbes. So they're just called soil probiotics for consumption. So mm-hmm. I think what you're talking about is really accurate. It's very possible we'd be moving into a world where we understand specific microbes, what they would do to our own immune system just by having them in the ambient soil, even of your backyard. Or uh, that's kind of a far out fantasy of mine that you could create a yard that is so that you can smell the soil, you know, it's the microbial life is very balanced and active, and it's going to affect your own immune system. But it's also possible that we're going to reach a point where we can grow the microbes that will do whatever we want for our own immune systems. Yeah, I think there's a huge, you know, potential there. And yeah, I'm going to be shocked if we don't learn lots of things, especially given when you mentioned probiotics, I mean, we're in an age where antibiotics are threatened. You know, we're losing that their effectiveness because of things like factory farms. They're one of the main culprits. But there's also overuse in human medicine. But those become less and less viable. We're going to need to have a way to deal with infectious diseases. If you go back 100 years or to actually to 1900, most of the major causes of death in the United States were infectious diseases, not, not chronic diseases. Now we have, you know, heart disease and cancer and things like that that kill us most commonly, but that wasn't always the case. We didn't, you know, we had obviously shorter lifespans too, but we died from infectious diseases. And there's been people at the World Health Organization who have warned that we could be re-entering that kind of era if we don't do more to protect antibiotic effectiveness. I mean, on the one hand, we could also protect those antibiotics. I mean, there's ways to protect that, um, that valuable resource of antibiotic effectiveness. That's like a, you know, it's like a resource in itself, right? But then the other, the flip side is to also learn more about probiotics and have that in our arsenal also. It's not, a, I don't think it's a either or kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Potentially it can be a both and. And I had a panel recently for a sustainable agriculture conference and Elaine was on the panel and it occurred to me that, you know, you hear a lot of predictions about what soil could potentially, how much carbon soil could sequester. And I thought to myself, well, I, I quoted to you that 29 inches of topsoil that Gabe Brown in North Dakota had six inches of topsoil. And then within like, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, I think it was maybe 20 years, he, he had, it had grown to 29 inches. So it occurred to me, well, if you're doing that, then what you're doing is you're making your carbon storehouse bigger. You're building a bigger carbon storehouse. And I, pres- I, I said that to Elaine, I said, what are the implications for that? Um, and she said, yeah, most of these models that are looking at agriculture and carbon sequestration, they're going off this assumption that the soil is only six inches deep. And she gets very upset about this. She's like, who says the soil is only six inches deep? And, the, you know, and she points out that the reason in a lot of places is only six inches deep is because that's how deep farmers plow. 
And then wherever you plow, wherever the bottom of your plowing is, that that's where the hard pan layer develops. And then no nothing can seep through there. And so the plants don't, or the trees don't put roots down. Plants and trees don't put roots down below that six inches. So of course, then they don't they don't grow new topsoil. And of course, because of other practices, you're not growing topsoil. But that's why this probably this idea has developed that this topsoil is only six inches deep because that's kind of what we produced in some places. And, you know, there's not really an upper limit. Thanks for listening. Follow this podcast on Instagram at GetInMyGarden. Send me an email, Aaron at GetInMyGarden.com, and subscribe wherever you listen from.